Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight. Hey. Hello. Um, hi, I'm Kay. I'm a bulimic and a compulsive reader. Hi. Hi. And uh, I don't I don't come to meetings over here very often. And Walter called me because of the whatever somebody else who spoke here a while ago. And it's real. It's great to be here. But this is a really um, <laughs> intimidating um, setup. But whatever, I'm going to plow through. Um, I have been in program for 20 years. And I just celebrated 18 years of abstinence on um, And, uh, you know, it's so also interesting. I've never had so long to speak. I mean, I've speak, spoken at many other meetings, but usually like a half hour, so 40 minutes. I'm like trying to figure out, what do I want to say in 40 minutes? Because this has been such a... Such a journey. I mean, my life is so totally different. I mean, night and day. I I came in to program. I was 28 years old. I was living in New York City, and I was suicidal. I had suffered from uh, bulimia for probably like eight years, but from compulsive overeating and the obsession of food and dieting since probably around 10 or 11. Um... I, you know, everybody, first of all, let me just say, this is totally my opinion, my story, and if you're new, uh, there are so many meetings in Los Angeles, and I encourage you to check, you know, them out, because you will find a place where you feel good and you fit in, um, if not this place. Um, So, you know, and everybody has a totally different background. You know, we all share the same disease. We all share the same weakness, which is what binds us. But, you know, the things that brought us here are all very different. I come from a, um, a very, you know, it's an overused phrase, but it certainly applies. I come from a really dysfunctional home. I'm the youngest of five children. Uh, my father died when I was four. He was actually killed. He was a police officer and he was killed and it was like this nefarious thing that happened and um, it really scarred my family. My mom was also uh, shot at the same time and the whole front of her brain was destroyed and but she was still functioning enough. She went through therapy and she looked the same and she talked like you know, she was a functioning adult, although she really had the mental capacity of probably a 10 or a 12-year-old. And she raised us. Um, as I said, I'm the youngest of five. All of my siblings are alcoholics and drug addicts. Um, and I'm a compulsive reader and a bulimic. And they all are also overweight. And, uh, you know, but like the food is an issue, but none of them have ever sought recovery for food. My oldest sister went to AA, um, gosh, I guess probably like 25 years ago, and she's sober, but she's, she's dry, and she doesn't go to meetings anymore, and, uh, you know, her life is really small, and I, I see my siblings, and I see, like, where I could be if not for having landed in these rooms and, and stuck 
Um, I've been coming nonstop for 20 years. Um, I really see OA as my church and my life's blood. I mean, I, I've learned about how to live in the world and be functional and have relationships and maintain them <laughs> and to not have food be the, um, the sort of thread that ran through everything in my life. Um, as I said, I started thinking about food and dieting probably when I was around 12. I remember one night uh, we were watching TV and, you know, my mom got out a bowl of M&Ms and I thought to myself, if I don't eat those, my stomach will be smaller tomorrow. And, like, that was sort of this idea in my head. And I, I had a girlfriend who had this perfect body or so I thought and like from that age on I started comparing myself to others and always coming up short and I um, I had we had some you know some bad stuff happen there was some uh, uh, you know inappropriate sexual stuff that happened and I around the age of 12 I really kind of went over the the deep end and I started eating a lot and I gained weight and um, I, I never was, you know, a 100-pounder or anything. I was never more than probably 30 pounds more than I am right now. But I felt horrible about how I looked. I was such a perfectionist. And that's a huge part of my story is that um, I was the, the child in the family who became the perfectionist, do-gooder, um, every, you know, good girl. I... Uh, I got straight A's in school. I felt like my only way out of this incredibly dysfunctional family that I was a part of was with if I got good grades, if I got into a good college, so that I could somehow, like, elevate myself above what I thought, you know, I was from, which was really sort of like, you know, trailer trash. Um, it was a really pretty bad situation. After my dad died, we had hardly any money. My mom lived off of a police pension. We were always poor, and... All of my siblings, never, none of them graduated from high school. They were always, like, stealing and borrowing money, and it was, like, always one drama after another. Um, horrible. My brother was an alcoholic from probably the age of 13 on. You know, just a very, very sad life. And he actually died two years ago of alcoholism. They found him dead in his trailer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just because he had drank himself into a stupor and he never woke up very, very sad, and, um, and you know, and I, I look at my life, which is so unbelievably amazing in comparison, I mean, it's just the stark contrast between what this program has done for me, I, I have a, a really very successful career, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm totally self-supporting, and, and, you know, feel good about myself in the world. Um, I have a really strong relationship. My, I have a son who is happy <laughs> and really, like, joyful. And it's just amazing that I have been able to participate in his life and help him. You know, I mean, I never knew joyful kids. You know, my, my two oldest sisters um, both got pregnant when they were really young. They both got pregnant at 17 married, one had one child, one had three children, both of them divorced, you know, became alcoholics, drug addicts, and their children have, like, it just carries on through generations. You know, my second oldest nephew died 
like I guess about four years ago now, um, probably a suicide. He was drunk. He was going to Las Vegas. He like ruined himself. He had his company credit card and he charged everything up on the credit card and he like ran into a truck, a semi, you know, on the highway outside of Vegas. It's like this is what I come from, you know. This is like what I could be, and um, and I'm just so not. So anyway, I. Growing up, I, I started obsessing about food, and, and like so surrounded by all of that, it was really important that I look good on the outside, very important to me. So the weight was like a horror to me, that I couldn't keep myself perfect and thin because I so wanted you to think that I was perfect. I was in, When I was in high school, I was the president of my class. I was the president of the school my senior year. I was most likely to succeed. I was Miss All Around. I was like so unbelievably functioning on the outside. On the inside, I would go home to our dingy little apartment where my mom sat and just chain-smoked and drank coffee and watched, you know, soap operas and talk shows all day long and, like, married inappropriate men. And it was just wild. I mean, I was, like, doing drugs when I was really young. But nobody knew any of this at school because at school I had this perfect facade. So this was really... So bulimia for me was... Perfect. When I learned about bulimia, and actually a, my older sister taught me how to do it. When she was in college, she learned, and then I, I did go to college, and I got a scholarship, and I went to a really good school, and I started practicing bulimia when I was in college. And, you know, for the first time, I started to get thinner, and, you know, I looked better on the outside, and uh, but the, then the bulimia took on a life of its own, and it was really awful. And, you know, I've heard being in these rooms for so many years, I've heard so many stories. And, like, there are many people who can, like, you know, they threw up after every meal and, you know, they could, like, go into the bathroom and walk out and look up. Not me. You know, when I tried to throw up, it was an event. I mean, I had to, like, close the curtains. I almost passed out once because it was really hard for me. And I found out later that I have a, a default I have a faulty gag reflex, and so it's like, like literally, it's like really hard for me to do it. But yet, that never stopped me. And um, I think I was at my absolute lowest when I was 25, and I was going away to New York to go to business school. I grew up around here, and um, I was, I had broken up with this boyfriend, and. Um, and I had gotten, for the first time in my life, really thin. Like, the clothes were falling off of me. And I got tons of attention. And I just was, like, high all the time. And, and then, all of a sudden, you know, the, the switch flipped, or however you say it. And I started to, like, really binge, out of control binging. And so then, the weight was coming on so rapidly. Like, you could really see there's something wrong with this girl. You know, like, she got so thin, and now she's getting so heavy so quickly. And so I started to go to the gym. That, that was a horrifying thought to me that anybody would know what was, that something was wrong with me, you know, because I always tried to look so perfect. And um, so I started to go to the gym, you know, constantly. Every day after work, I was at the gym, and I was on the bike, and I was on, and I was riding my bike to the gym, and I got into an accident because I wasn't paying attention. So I ran into this car. I flipped over. I broke my collarbone. And I was staying with one of my sisters who's a drug addict and alcoholic at the time and, like, you know, doing cocaine all night long with her. And 
just crazy, crazy. And so anyway, I have this broken collarbone. So any movement is painful to me, any movement at all. And did that stop me from binging and throwing up? No. I mean, I just I remember it so vividly. I remember going back when there was nobody in the house, making these concoctions at my sister's house, and then throwing up in her bathroom and, like, being wrenched, you know, the pain was, like, so intense, and yet nothing was going to stop me, you know. I mean, they say, you know, like, I know for me, when I, before I learned that this was a disease and before I came into these rooms, I thought, what is wrong with me that I have no willpower, you know, that I can't control this? It's like, what kind of a screw-up am I? And, um, and you know, oh, my God, I have the strongest will. <laughs> you know, I am an extremely willful person, you know, as I, and so many of my friends in program, we're very strong people, you know. It's just, we have a disease. It's like, which I learned when I came in here. So, anyway, so I went to New York. And that was, um, that was the beginning of me, you know, sort of calling it quits. I, I went to business school. I got a job on Wall Street. And um, I was practicing bulimia very frequently then, so I looked thin. I was wearing Brooks Brothers suits. I was showing up at the bank every day. And, um, and I was smoking cigarettes at the time. I smoked also, although nobody ever knew it. Um, and I smoked a pack a day. So imagine, like, nobody knowing. Like, and I'm smoking a pack a day. I mean, I must have had, like, five cigarettes before I left the house in the morning. You know, just so, <laughs> so I would sneak out of my office, you know, on Wall Street and go down and hide in the doorway and smoke, you know. And then I would, like, eat mints. And I kept all my clothes wrapped in plastic because I didn't want anybody to smell the smoke on me. It's like I was obsessed with making you think that I, you know, was perfect. And so, <laughs> so I found this guy who was perfect. He uh, had grown up in uh, boarding schools in Switzerland. His father worked for the largest insurance company in the world and was like this big shot. And, you know, his mom used to play bocce ball at Central Park. And, you know, I mean, like, I thought, this is it. I'm going to join that family. And then I will have no problems, you know. So, <laughs> but of course, inside, I am a complete and utter wreck. So every time I wasn't with this guy, I was being bulimic. So the bulimia started to really take off. And it, I couldn't sustain it anymore. I just felt like I was going to crack. And so I ended up breaking up with him. And then I was every day bulimic. And I felt like this is it. I'm, I'm going to die. I cannot keep doing this. And I just was so hopeless. And I called this girlfriend of mine, the one who was really thin, who I used to compare myself to all the time when we were growing up, and I called her, and she said, you know, Kate, I don't know. I don't know if this will work for you, but I know somebody who went into Overeaters Anonymous. And I'm like, no way, you know, that's a cult. My sister went into AA, and she didn't stick with it. And, uh, you know, that's just replacing one crutch with another. I'm like, but what do I have to lose, you know? And so I went, and I went to my first meeting. And so my first meeting there was, it was on, at a little church in the basement on the Upper East Side in New York, and this guy who was the speaker was a nut. I mean, he was really, like, crazy. And, but all the people in the room, like, there was just this vibe in the room, and I thought, okay, I'm not going to give up. All right, I'm just I'm going to go to one more meeting. So then I went to one more meeting, and the next meeting that I went to was amazing. And the woman who spoke was a bulimic, and... She talked about her bulimia, and she talked about the throwing up and, like, really got graphic, which I needed to hear because I thought I was the only one who did this because I never talked about it with anybody because I was so perfect on the outside. And, I mean, I remember going to the library at the school that I was at NYU, and I went to their library, and 
I looked up bulimia because I, I wasn't even sure if that's what I had, you know, like back in 1988, you know, it was like that wasn't so common. And, and I was afraid to tell the librarian that I wanted to, to look up this book because I thought that she would look at me and think I had it. So I was like ready for a story about how it was for a friend of mine. And if anybody was going to ask me, you know, if anybody looked over my shoulder. So anyway, it was amazing to me when this woman spoke and she talked about her bulimia. And I was just, I started crying. And I couldn't stop crying. And then I was really embarrassed because I thought, oh, no, everybody in the room knows that I'm crying about this. Like, they don't have it, you know. So <laughs> I ran out of the room and this woman chased me down. And she gets me in the elevator and, she's, and she became my first sponsor. And... Um, and I took to program hook, line, and sinker. I mean, I went to a meeting a day. It was like I was a born-again OA person. I mean, I, it was my life, really, because <laughs> I needed it so desperately. I was so sick. And, um, and I came every single day to a meeting, and I worked with this woman. I called her every single morning at exactly, I forget now, it was 6.15 or 6.30. But, like, if I missed my window with her, she wouldn't take my call because she had a whole slew of sponsees that were calling her. And, um, and I got thin. That first, like, six, nine months where I was in program, I got thin. Like, as thin as I was when I had broken up with that boyfriend and the clothes were falling off of me again. I ate the same thing every day. I had the, I think it was oatmeal in the morning. I had a turkey sandwich with mustard and an apple that I used to dip in sweet and low, a green apple that I would dip in sweet and low every day. And then for, for dinner, I had like maybe three different dinners that I would, you know, change off with. I hardly ever went out to dinner because I couldn't control it completely. And, uh, and I was a Nazi. I was a complete Nazi when it came to food. And, um, and I became like this proselytizer, you know, with OA. And I, I dropped all my friends. I'm like, if you can't, you know, get on this train with me, you know, <laughs> I can't have you in my life anymore, you know, because I am getting well, you know. <laughs> and, uh, it was, uh, you know, I was, I was intense. You know, I was a very intense OAer. And, um, okay, so then the perfectionism of that, you know, it like it started to kind of fall away. And, um, and I started to realize that there was, like, a lot more to this program than just perfect food. And, uh, and I started to really feel, you know, because, you know, they say if you don't know what you're eating over, just stop eating, like, and you will know. And sure enough, I mean, when I, like, when the sort of intense high of being really thin and, like, eating the same thing all the time, you know, when that started to wear off, I started to really feel. And I, I started to go through, like, just crying, constantly, nonstop crying. And I also gave up smoking cigarettes. That's how, I don't know, if, if smoking was a real thing for me for a long time. And I so wanted to quit smoking because I wanted to be perfect so badly. And that was such a sign of weakness in my mind. And so I quit smoking when I was in that perfectionism phase. And, you know, my sponsor was like, don't do it. You know, what are you doing? You're going to, you might lose your abstinence. And I'm like, no, I'm going to do it. So I, I did it. And, um, and it was really, really hard. So, in any case, uh, I went to N.A., actually. They had back then Nicotine Anonymous. I don't know if they still have that. But I went every day. And I went to an OA meeting and an N.A. meeting. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, I was, like, I was religious about this. And, uh, okay. So, um, 
So anyway, so I started to like melt inside, and I, I got myself a really good therapist. You know, it says in the big book that, um, you know, if you need outside help, get it. And I needed it. I mean, I've told you a little bit about, like, my childhood. I needed it. You know, I had some serious stuff I had to get through. And, um, you know, I, I am not in therapy now. I've actually been out for a couple of years. But I was in therapy for 18 years, you know. it's like, And I worked it in tandem with this program. You know, I worked the steps in this program. I stayed absent in this program. And I worked my emotional recovery to a large degree in therapy. Because I, I needed it. Not everybody does, but I did. Um, so, uh, anyway, so I was working with the sponsor. We started working on the steps, and I'm like, she was so cold and so like me, you know, just so frozen inside. And I'm like, there's no way I could do my fourth step with this woman. You're like, I can't, t- I can't reveal this stuff to her. I don't think I would get a compassionate audience. And so I gave up that sponsor. And I have to say, over the next, like, number of years in program, I went through so many sponsors and that also, I mean, I don't recommend that, but that was my path because what I was looking for in a sponsor was I wanted Mother Teresa, you know. I wanted a therapist, a mother, a, a father, you know. I wanted, like, somebody who was all-knowing and all-compassionate, you know, and who would just listen to me, you know. And, <laughs> and um, so I, I, I had so many aborted fifth steps because I would start on my fifth step with somebody and, like, they wouldn't hear it right. You know, we'd get through, like, and of course it's like a tomb, you know, my fifth step or my fourth step. So, you know, we never got through it in one sitting. And so I would, like, ditch that sponsor. And um, and so anyway, so I, I fell in love with somebody. And he happened to be friends of friends of mine out here in L.A. And I ended up moving back to L.A. And... Uh, and when I and I had also been like completely celibate my first couple years in program. So along with like the perfect food, I also like had no interactions with anyone outside program. And <laughs> so when I <laughs> when I first had a relationship with somebody, you know, the, it really kind of fell apart for me also because it was like opening myself up and I just wasn't ready to do that. And so I lost my abstinence and I actually I checked into a rehab and the rehab was here in LA. And, um, and, you know, i got to say, I don't hear that many people going into rehab these days. That was the thing to do back in the 80s. You know, if you had an eating disorder and you had good insurance, boom, you were there, you know. And so I was in this, this rehab, and it wasn't that great, I have to say. You know, it kept me abstinent because I had no choice, which was good. Um, but, you know, the therapy was mediocre, and, you know, I was surrounded by crazy people. You know, really, it was sort of, I felt like, oh, my God, you know, I don't know if I'm in the right place. But, um Anyway, I, I ended up doing that and getting closer with this guy because he lived in L.A. So he would come and, like, check me out of the crazy, you know, room on the weekends. And you know, <laughs> so we would date, you know, while I was in rehab. And I ended up marrying him, And um, which, by the way, you know, I wouldn't recommend. I wouldn't recommend, you know. Like, I don't know. For me, it took years before I actually knew who I was enough to trust myself in a relationship and be trustworthy. You know, I, I got together with this guy, and it was really because I loved his family. His family was like something out of, you know, Norman Rockwell, and that's what I wanted. And so I married him to be with his family, and, and that wasn't fair to him. And uh, anyway, I moved out here. I started working with another sponsor who I actually got through my fifth step with her. God bless her. She was great. And uh, she had a really good sense of humor, and she was patient enough. I think we got together like four times, you know. 
<laughs> and I would just sit there and read to her. And, and the, um, the format of my fourth step was, uh, like, I, I never I didn't even see it anymore, but it was like this, this book, you know, where you fill out, and it like goes all the way back to, like, when you were one or whatever, you know. And, oh, exhausting. So but she was patient, and she sat through it. And um, so I, I started working steps six and seven through her. With her, I got pregnant, and um, and she got pregnant too. Oddly enough, we both got pregnant at the same time, and we had our babies one day after another. It was so strange. She like stopped working with me after that. She had no time, and I didn't really either. And you know, for anybody who's like you know has tried to raise children in this program, you know, and, and work and have a life, it was really hard those years after having my son. I, um, I used to go to mommy and me meetings. There were a couple, and, you know, they were really kind of sad because the babies are talking and distracting, and, like, you're trying to, like, hear the message. And, you know, and I, I really, uh, my program started to take a back seat. I didn't get another sponsor, and um, I always went to meetings, though. Always went to meetings. When my son was three years old, I got a divorce. And it was an awful divorce. And it was really like for me extremely painful I was the one who wanted it um, and uh, it was just messy and ugly and it also completely whipped me around because I got so horribly depressed and I realized that if I'm going to have the kind of life that I hope to have, you know, that I have got to start working this program again in earnest, you know, maybe not like the Nazi that I was when I first came in, but really working it. So, um, so I got another sponsor, and I still have her today, actually. It's been now eight or nine years, and I work with this woman. And you know what? Here's, here's the beauty of my relationship with her is that she is imperfect, and I am okay with that. She's not had a child. You know, she doesn't understand my issues with motherhood. I have to go to other people for that. And she's quite frank about it. You know, she's like, I have no experience with that. You need to talk to somebody else. And, um, you know, she gives me straight program. That's what I get when I talk to her. You know, it's not, she's not my therapist. You know, she, she has no experience of what it was like to be me growing up. Like, she doesn't know the stuff that I go through, you know, the, the lows that I hit and the places my mind goes. Because she didn't have that experience. But you know what? I don't think I'm going to find somebody who's exactly like me in these rooms and who also can give me the kind of program that I want. And she has a kick-ass program. She, um, she whatever, she's great. And uh, so working with her, though, it's been, like, a real experience. I finally did my eighth and ninth step with her. I did all my ninth step amends. Um, I some really wonderful ones. Uh, this I had a roommate in college who. Uh, <laughs> this is like the you know the worst of my disease and uh, or one of the worst parts. And she was from Texas, and they had Godiva chocolate down in Texas, and I had never heard of Godiva chocolate. And her parents used to send her these big boxes of this stuff, and it would come in a gold box, and it was so beautiful. And, you know, she'd put it in the fridge, and, like, she'd eat, like, half a one and, like, leave it. Like, she could care less about it. And she offered me one, you know, and, like, what a mistake. She offered me one. So I had one, and I'm like, oh, my God, nectar and ambrosia. You know, so every time that she wasn't in the house, I would go in and I would help myself to these chocolates, right? So a couple of weeks go by and she comes out with this box. She, like, for, you know, forgot. She went back in to get one and, like, it's almost empty, right? So she comes and she's like, Kay, you ate all my chocolate. And I'm like, 
I did not. I thought maybe you had a piece or two. And she's like, I haven't even opened this box. You know, you're, you're lying to me. And I'm like, I am not. You know, I got so ashamed. I could not answer. So anyway, so she was one of my amends. And I actually, I tracked her down because her and I didn't stay in touch. And she's a photographer here in L.A. And I, I found her. I called her. And I'm like, what's your address? <laughs> and I sent her, like, this 10-pound box of Godiva chocolates, right? So she, she called me back, and she's like, well, you didn't have to do that. And I'm like, yes, I did, you know, because I really did eat those chocolates and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and it turned out that she, she was so touched by what I did that she came over to my house, and she's a fabulous photographer, and she took all these beautiful black and white photographs of me and my son. And they're like the best pictures that he and I have together. And we, we made a Christmas card out of one of them and sent it out to everybody. And I have it like framed in my living room. But it's like that's, a, that's one of my sweetest amends. But like I had to do a bunch of financial amends. I had to, um, my last year in graduate school, they lost my record. They like forgot about me. And I was staying in student housing, this incredibly cool studio apartment like on Thompson Street in Soho in New York. And I never paid for rent the whole time I was there. So... I called the school, and I'm like, you know, I need to talk to your housing department. They lost my record. You know, it's been 15 years. They don't care about me. And, and I said, listen, I, really, I need to pay you guys back. I owe you, you know, at least whatever, 3000 I forget what it was. I think it was even $6,000. And, uh, and they're like, we don't care. You know, it's okay. And I'm like, I got you. So what I ended up doing is giving it to the alumni fund. And so the alumni fund thinks that I'm like this incredibly, you know, beneficial person. So they call me all the time. I get a million letters from them, you know. And I'm like, no, I'm not that generous, really. You know, I was just making an amends. So, whatever. Um, so let me, then let me think. What can I tell you? So how do I work my program today? This is how I work it. I, what has been... The most important thing for me, I think, of, of all the literature that we read, you know, I got in here in 1988, so they didn't even have the OA stuff when I got in here. And for me, I love the AA 12 and 12, and I love the big book. And, you know, when I first came in here, if you're new, I couldn't relate to the big book at all. But I tell you, I, I can totally relate to it now. And there are some passages in there that are probably, like, not even written by, you know, Bill. It was like there's the, um, I forget what it's called now. I think it's just called the... Well, it used to be called The Doctor's Opinion, whatever it's called now. There's that one story in the big book about the guy with his wife, Max, and how, you know, when he's looking for what's wrong, that's what he sees. You know, if you're, if you're looking for the problem, you're going to find more of the problem. You know, and if you're looking for the solution, you're going to find more of the solution. And it's really like the ma magic magnifying lenses, you know. And that, for me, has been so true. You know, that's what I remember more than any other piece of literature. I, my work is to be an acceptance of life exactly how it is, you know. I mean, and I have been through years. I mean, I cannot change my family. You know, I couldn't save my brother's life. I, I cannot make any of them get into program, you know. And, I, and that's not my job. You know, they see me. They see the life that I'm living. You know, this is a, a program of attraction, not promotion. If they want what I have, they will come get it. You know, I have a cousin who is... You know, we're just messed up on all sides. She's probably, I don't know, 300 pounds. She used to be a lot more. She got her stomach stapled. And now she eats constantly because she can only eat a little bit at a time. But because she has no program, no recovery, she eats the most fattening things that she can get a hold of to, like, fill that 
longing that we have, you know. And, and she's huge still. You know, she has dropped some weight, but it's like, and she knows I'm in program, you know. And I, I used to try to get her in, but it's like, she doesn't want it. Not everybody wants this program, you know. Not everybody wants to change, you know. I mean, this is about a psychic change. I have to live my life differently. I cannot be the one in charge. And for me, though, that's not work. I don't want to be the one in charge. It's a tremendous relief. When I came into these rooms and found that it wasn't my fault, that it wasn't a weak will, that, you know, this really was a disease, and that the world wasn't on my shoulders and I didn't have to be perfect, it was like, oh, my God, you know, mana from heaven. It's what I wanted to hear, you know, and not everybody can hear that message, you know, and I get that today. So for me, it's all about acceptance, you know, accepting my son for who he is, you know, and just letting him be, you know, even though he's so different from me in so many ways and I just, you know, I have to just love who he is, you know, and and not expect him to be just like me. And, um, you know, my work situations, you know, I I am such, I am a better worker today than I have ever been, you know, because I don't try to change everyone around me. <laughs> you know, I just show up and I, I do my job, you know, and I, I try to be as true to myself as I as I can be and I think that that really does does well for me. You know, it also says in the big book like we make the best workers, you know. We really do, you know, because we're like we're tough, you know, and we're hardworking, and, and, like, you know, I bring that to the table, and, you know, but I, I used to be a just horrible, horrible bitch, essentially. I mean, I, I had an old boyfriend once who gave me this poster called um, <laughs> The Dragon Lady, and it had a picture of a woman with, like, a, a, a knife, you know, like, trying to stab somebody, and it's like, that's who I used to be. I used to be so intense. Like, if you didn't see it my way, you know, get out of the way, you know, because I was going to mow you down. And, um, and like how I was when I first came into program. Like, if you couldn't get on this train, you know, stay out of my way. And, and like, I'm just, I'm not like that anymore. You know, I'm really quite patient <laughs> and compassionate, you know, uh, you know, as well as I can be. And when I'm not, you know, I know how to get back there. It's like that's the beauty of this program. You know, the food for me, I, you know, I'd love to say that it was like, you know, I got struck out. You know, after I was in that rehab, I, uh, I stayed heavy for a while. You know, I put on a lot of weight during those, like, few weeks before I got myself into the hospital. And, um, and I stayed chunky for a while. And, um, you know, that just had to be okay. You know, I ate three meals a day, and they were kind of big meals, and that just had to be okay. And, like, there was a period in my abstinence where I was eating Rice Krispie Krispie treats and, like, a big thing of frozen yogurt for lunch every day, you know, for, like, six months. That's what I did. And it had a beginning and an end, and that was, you know, okay. And here's the deal. This is my issue, you know. It's, like, not every... Every single person in these rooms has a different food plan and a different way of working it. You know, I know many people whose recovery I totally respect. They can't touch sugar and they can't touch white flour. To them, it's like heroin, and I get it, but that's, that hasn't been my experience. My experience was horrible perfectionism, you know, intense, intense control. And so for me, it's recovery for me to be able to eat, you know, pretty much anything. You know, I know, though, that when I start messing around with sugar, I'm going to want a lot of it. So I just kind of stay away from that. I don't say that I can't have it ever, but I just don't go there very often because I do. You know, it's delicious, and I want to eat it, but I don't want to get heavy, you know. So anyway, so the weight started to 
to come off really gradually. And after I got a divorce and really started working this program again in earnest, you know, that's when it started to, like, come back down to sort of where I am now, and, and I've been this way for a while. Um, I, I really don't think about food that often. You know, I, I'm always excited for meals. You know, I love food. I love to eat, you know, but I don't obsess about what I'm going to have at the next meal, rarely. Um, there are times when I do still, though, and there are times that I have big meals, and I know what I'm doing. You know, I want to have a very, I want comfort food, and I have it. You know, but what I do is I call my sponsor, and I tell her what's going on, and for the next day, I turn my food over to her. You know, and that's all I need. You know, everybody's different, and I tell my sponsees, you know, that's what works for me. You know, you may need to, like, call me for a week, you know, until you're back on track. It's like that everybody is different. You know, I've been around for a long time, so I could pretty much get myself back on track pretty quick. Um, and I think I'll wrap just so that we have time for a few questions. You know, I, I became an atheist when I was in high school. All of a sudden, like, I just woke up one morning and thought, why should I believe in a God? Like, what's the evidence that there's a God? You know, I'm very analytical. And so I, I pretty much believed, you know, in nothing until I got into program. And then I did have a couple of pretty intense spiritual experiences. You know, I mean, the first one really was when I came to that first meeting and I just started weeping and I, I just felt like this, like there really was something in that room, you know, and I was okay with just like having that be my higher power, you know, and I didn't really think about it too much. I just kind of like let it seep into me. But I remember like one day I was walking down the street. It was just, it's really amazing. And it's like all of a sudden I just felt this incredible presence with me and it was unshakable. And, like, in that moment, like, I didn't have a doubt in the world that there was a higher power. And I've had a few of those, you know. So, but I don't have them all the time. And I don't stay there all the time, you know, because I, I have a lot of, like, pain and, and stuff going on with me still, you know. I mean, I, I have a lot of, you know, skeletons in my closet. So here's what I have come to sort of accept in my life is that, my life works so much better when I believe in a higher power, you know, that it doesn't matter if there really is one because I'm not going to know until I'm gone, right? So if during this time that I have here on earth, if I choose to believe that there's this sort of beauty and, and love and, like, forgiveness out there, you know, and, like, sort of this, this kind of wave of, of goodness, which is how I kind of perceive it, my life works, you know, it's like things happen the way that I want them to or the way that, you know, ultimately I'm satisfied and accept them as being God's will. You know, so it's kind of a about acceptance for me, you know, and just acting as if because I'll never know, you know, not in this life. I don't think unless, you know, you want to tell me. <laughs> uh-huh. Talks about our perfectionism and, and you know going to work and all of that. And I suffer from that. You know, I really 
beat myself up a lot, always want to be the best and striving all the time. If you stop that, if you stop that constantly day in, day out. Mm. You know what really, I mean, I still am a perfectionist, absolutely, but something uh, very unexpected, an unexpected gift, an unwanted gift, I got fired from my job four years ago, a job at a really prestigious company where I had been for 10 years and I had risen up and I was like in a really, you know, high-powered position, big office, you know, big deal, and I ended up getting fired. There was a merger and I didn't fit in with the new world. And like the worst thing that I could ever imagine happened to me. You know, like this is my nightmare, you know, <laughs> that anybody would like reject me and not think that I was doing a good job. And uh, and what was amazing to me is that I didn't fall apart, you know, and I had a contract and they ended up having to pay me for a year. And if I got another job, they'd stop paying me. <laughs> so I was like being paid to not work for a year. And I had a whole year of like chilling you know, where I slept in, I took my son to school, I like became the room mother in his class, and like I lived this whole alternative existence away from this intense professional life, and it was so fulfilling to me, and pe- nobody rejected me, like nobody left, you know, I was so afraid that if I wasn't perfect, I was going to be abandoned by everybody, and you know what, not a single person left, in fact, I became so much nicer, <laughs> and so much more fun to be around, it's like... And my son and I got so much closer. It was like such a gift. And I think more than anything, it's like God doesn't want that from me. I don't have to be perfect in order to be safe. You know, and that's what I thought. Like in order to be safe in the world, I have to always be ahead of you. You know, and that's just not, it's not true. You know, it's still my default position. I still am very competitive. You know, I still, like, now I have a good job and I like it, you know, but I'm not nearly as intense as I used to be. Hi. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, how do you start off your day? I start off my day with the alarm clock, <laughs> much to my dismay. Um, and I have an enormous dog who sleeps with me, and so as soon as the alarm, I hit the alarm, and I roll over, and I hug him, and I say my prayers, <laughs> and I think of, like, you know, dog is God spelled backwards, and <laughs> he's really, like, he's like my love thing, you know, and so, and I say my prayers, and, um, you know, usually it's, like, the third step prayer, you know, and I just, I ask God to, like, please let me be of service today, you know, help me get out of my own way. You know, and just do how you would have me do. Help me to show up in the world as you would have me show up. Uh Uh-huh. Okay.